Okay, so we've spent uh, a whole other hour, I guess, of stuff which could have been on the podcast, but it was just general catch-up and conversation. Um, but if people like me who don't know you so well, um, if they had to, if you had to describe yourself in a few words, how would you describe who you are? <laughs> that really would have been useful from the previous stuff. Eh? Um, yeah, okay, so I'd say I'm a bit of a like a tinkerer of all things. Um, I'd imagine that's sort of something that goes through with most engineers. You take things apart as a child, uh, much to your parents' dismay. Uh, you play around with toy motors. You take something that's fully functional, like a little RC car, take out the motor, and now all you've got left is a motor <laughs> that you can use to spin things, I guess. But yeah, um, definitely, definitely say that's something that I'm into, just messing around with things. And because of that, I mean, I've been doing that since I was a child. Because of that, I say it's given me quite a lot of confidence in messing around with new things. Uh, if you want to work on something that you've never worked on before, a lot of people are quite hesitant about that. Uh, don't really feel that. got a lot of practice in it, so it's something that I do. Sort of like a, I don't find any task too difficult. It's mm. a task that's difficult. As long as it's possible to do, I have no problem attempting to do it. Uh, if you give me an impossible task, you are wasting my time. That's just... <laughs> that's... That's just how it is, I guess. Um, another thing, I value knowledge or information. I just, I find that, I don't know, I don't know how you would describe that. I just really value it. It's, I always strive to have more knowledge. I mean, if I could know everything, that would be great. But <laughs> at the moment, I can't do that. So, um, yeah, acquiring new knowledge from anything from, how power stations work, how nuclear works, how the sun warms us up, to how hair dye gets into your hair and how it's made. <laughs> and seeing people enjoy stuff is also uh, the knowledge they enjoy and how they get excited when they talk about things they know. It's also a really nice thing to be a part of. When someone talks about something they enjoy, even though it's something I might not necessarily have any experience in, just nice to see them get excited about things that they know and then they give me some of their knowledge as well which is cool like a knowledge leech <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what i would say that's sort of what i am enjoy knowledge and i enjoy messing around with things yeah no i think one of the things i always remember from your advice is you just had this whole broad general knowledge i don't know how many instruments i saw you play or fiddle with or dabble with um but you just always had i won't say too many interests but there were a lot of interest that you had. And I still even think now there are a lot of interest that you do have. Yeah, spot on with that. Um, it has got me into a bit of a position now where I've got a cello that I tried once. Um, <laughs> and I broke a string, found out how much it cost to replace a string, and then I didn't play it again. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, instruments are a very nice uh, thing to tinker in. I mean, you can make amazing sounds. Especially once you've learned how to read music, that you can then transfer that to almost any instrument. Uh, I can't play the violin. I wouldn't subject my neighbors to me learning how to play a violin. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But you thought about it? I have thought about it. My mom took up the lesson, that's, or lessons. That's actually why I know it's quite a horrendous instrument to start learning. 
<laughs> but guitar, piano, a bit of harmonica, cello once, tried to learn the Game of Thrones theme song, <laughs> and that's where I broke the string. No, I think one of the things I, I always said about Rory, because you've gone through, um, not you've gone through, I've just ha had you at Res, obviously, for a period of five years with university. But I always say that you just have this unconventional way of thinking and an unconventional way of learning. I still have the memory the first few times when we were doing physics. You had the small book where you used to draw diagrams and everyone else was reading textbooks and highlighting and you were doing, drawing your own diagrams. And for you, that's what made sense. But what contributed to this unconventional way of learning? So <laughs> this is something that gets brought up quite a bit. Um, towards the final years of school, I did really well in my subjects. And I, like when I see friends from school now, they're like, oh, you were always a math genius or science buff or something. That wasn't true. I was a bit of a... Uh, <laughs> Was a bit of a dunce when it came to school up until about grade seven. Uh, I took a actually, I think I asked my dad a question. I asked him a question about a subject I was doing, and he said, Well, what do you think the answer was? I gave my answer, and he was like, That's bloody ridiculous. How can <laughs> <laughs> how is that your level of understanding? Like, not, not those exact words, but how is that your level of understanding in grade seven of maths and physics and that kind of stuff? Like, that's not good enough, that's unacceptable. So I, <laughs> I then spent 15 minutes every morning for like, say, four years, doing a little bit of maths in the morning. Um, see those memes online where, did you really grow up in a household if your father wasn't shouting at you, <laughs> what's five times seven, and you're trying to answer through tears? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, I don't know. I, I assume most people don't really go through that. So that might have led to my unconventional learning patterns, uh, just being taught differently, not solely from the teachers at school, but I probably picked up a lot of my learning from my dad uh, or my learning methods, I guess. Yeah. Okay. No, I think for me, my dad was also the academic of the household. Um, so I don't, I can't recall him really teaching us how to learn but it was one of those things where you know on weekends and and on holidays you know for him he worked in other towns so i guess when he came to holiday he just wanted to spend time at home with the family but we would read a lot so we'd obviously watch tv play xbox and play outside but there was definitely just a portion of reading so i guess as you say parents can be a big driving factor i never actually thought about that until now that you mentioned it and um, yeah, so I still remember when you at Varsity, you had your Arnold vehicle that was, um, your champion, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, the Nissan Champ, yeah. <laughs> the Nissan Champ. And for me, I was just like, well, it did its job. It was very effective in moving you from place to place, as well as transporting seniors at all yeah. hours of the morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I think you obviously got the upgrade to the... Um, the big one on which it's the VW what? Yeah, the transport. Yeah, so that still is more of a utility type vehicle and not your most conventional vehicle, I think, that people would drive around on a day-to-day -day basis. But I don't think you were ever interested really in cars, from what I understood. 
I don't think we ever had conversations around cars. Maybe it was just something that just didn't come up on the surface. But how does someone go from zero interest to cars to doing a master's and sort of self-driving cars? So that was entirely a mistake. There was no planning there. I mean, it would be really nice to say I had an interest in cars my whole life and I managed to get into the field I really love. But that was not the case at all. I just sort of fell into it because in my honors year, I took a mechatronic subject and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's just electrical components, using them in circuits and all of that. I did really well in there as well. So I <laughs> realized at the end of honors, if I don't continue studying, I've got to work. And that was not for me. <laughs> I, really, I really didn't want to do that. I didn't feel prepared to work. Um, so I went to speak to the mechatronic lecturer, asked him, do you have any master's topics in this field? Anything I can take on? He didn't really have something available on the spot for me. So he said, well, just apply for your master's. We'll get you registered and all of that. And we'll spend the first couple of months maybe trying to find something for you to do. And that was about six months of just messing around with him on things that were happening in his group, which was the vehicle dynamics group at the university. So he was part of the vehicles group. I ended up as part of the vehicles group and someone, a previous, uh, someone from previous years had done some work on self-driving cars and they weren't very happy with how he conducted his experiments. So they asked if I could redo the experiments, which is what I ended up doing. I redid the experiments and that's what I basically formulated my master's off of. So that's how I fell into vehicles, which was at, at the same time, a little bit unfortunate because in your honors year, you can pick a vehicle subject, which I did not. So I had no idea what I was doing in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, the symbols of cars, uh, when you're working with the formulas of cars, I mean, you know your basic physics formulas, but <laughs> I knew nothing else. So I had to catch that up pretty quickly. <laughs> so I think in South Africa, we can't even get our roads fixed. Well, I know that's in Queenstown. So self-driving cars is probably something that we won't see here in Africa for a while. But how much of a role, I guess, maybe it's not something that you studied, but from what you understand, how much of a role does infrastructure, the infrastructure of a country really play in making this work? Okay, so the, the main topic of my work was trying to determine when you're, when you're controlling a self-driving car, how much delay you could have in the self-driving system before you lost control of the car. So in terms of actual knowledge on the infrastructure required, I can only really give you information on my literature study, which sort of skimmed the surface of uh, what self-driving cars needed. But I think the main point is a self-driving car, most companies are pushing to have a self-sufficient, self-reliant kind of setup. That's a car can do everything on its own. That's ideal. You don't want to have reliance on a computer off-site. You want the car to be able to work out what kind of situation it's in and react to that situation entirely on its own. Um, I mean, that's self-driving car. That's what humans do in a car. The person doesn't need to pick up the phone and call someone to be like, cool, there's a pothole in the road. Should I turn left or right? You want the car to be able to, to do that on its own. 
So in terms of infrastructure, I don't think that's actually holding Africa back. Um, I mean, as far as you, you can check this, but as far as I'm aware, Tesla can Tesla self-driving cars can drive on an isolated road. I mean, people struggle to do that. That's a road that's in almost an undrivable condition, but self-driving cars can handle that. So a pothole here and there shouldn't be a problem. What will be a problem is markings on the road. A car needs to know how many lanes there are. If there's no marking, it can't tell which side of the road is the right side of the road. So some infrastructure definitely required. Um, you, depending on the car or the technology used, you don't really need speed limits on the side of the road. I mean, you can have that all uploaded to an online map somewhere. And as long as the car's got internet access, which is pretty much countrywide anyway in South Africa, it has access to the speed limits of all the roads. Um, but yeah, I'd say at the very least markings on, on the road itself, just so that it knows where it is in the road. Um, and then obviously it depends on how far into the technology you wanna go. I'm not sure how much you've followed what's happening with 5G. Um, <laughs> most of it is bad news, people burning down to <laughs> But one of the big things 5G is offering is something called V2X, which is vehicle to everything communications. And that, that kind of communication takes self-driving cars far beyond what they currently are. A self-driving car on its own can look around it, look around itself, see what cars are doing based on cameras, LiDAR, radar, that kind of stuff. If you give this car access to the internet, I mean, or beyond that, give it access to talking to cars around it, not just working out what cars are doing using cameras and stuff, but actually talking to the car next to it and being like, cool, exactly how fast are you going? How much are you decelerating? It doesn't have to work it out for itself. It can just ask the car next door to it, what are you doing? I mean, that increases safety, well, has the ability to increase safety like exponentially. It's what 5G can offer, the self-driving system is incredible. Um, it also adds self-driving cars to the internet of things. So you want to watch a movie in your car. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> I mean, the car driving itself, you can watch a movie. That's cool. Mm. That kind of stuff you do need infrastructure for. I know there's a billboard somewhere where MTN is claiming that 5G network, we've got it. They're lying. South Africa does not really have a 5G network. I mean, there's something called Rain 5G. From what I've seen online, it's worse than 4G. So 5G is not just a cell phone reception. It's what, it's far beyond that. The, the possibilities with 5G are amazing, and we do not have that. But it's not necessary for self-driving cars. It just makes them better, I would say. So to sum all of that up, kind of waffled a bit, but to sum all of that up, the infrastructure beyond well-marked roads is not necessary for self-driving cars to work, but to have the best system possible, you need to have good infrastructure. And that's mostly regarding 5G implementation. Okay. Well, it makes a lot more sense about the whole 5G thing, because I think my knowledge of 5G is more about the conspiracy theories that it has about killing birds and uh, <laughs> the cause of coronavirus. So. So that's most people's knowledge. I mean, 
it's it's fair. If you're not involved in the in the implementation of 5G, you don't need to know anything about it. So not knowing about it is perfectly fine. But I don't. I assume you don't go burning down towers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not an expert on 5G. I don't know what its health effects are. But when you talk to a conspiracy theorist, you can assume just from the stuff they say they don't really know either. So that's. That's a it's a massive thing for self-driving cars. Yeah. No, like I think you just highlighted a good point about like the fact that the car needs to know where exactly the division in the road is, if I can overtake. And it's actually quite cool as you speak about it, you know, the possibilities of having it connected to every other car and system. If you know there's a roadblock ahead, or not really a roadblock, because I think even our phones let you know, okay, fine, you know. At this moment in time, probably take another route. It redirects you. So if you're already using that technology, you know it's probably the same thing that the car will leverage off. But also the fact that, okay, someone up ahead has hit a cow or something like that that it couldn't protect. You know, everyone else slowed down to protect um, everyone else. I can obviously see the opportunities for criminals and SA to take advantage of this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that. no. So just on that, I mean, the whole thing with a car being able to communicate with cars around it is you increase, it's called the radius of awareness of the car. A radar can only see so far. If there's something, if there's a car in front of a car, you can't see beyond that. A radar can't penetrate through a car. LIDAR, very accurate over short, uh, slightly further distances. But again, if there's a, an object blocking your view, you can't see beyond that. But if you can communicate with the car in front of you, that car in front of you can tell you exactly what's ahead of it. It can see a pothole, be like, cool, there's a pothole here, let me move to the left. Every car behind me, just watch out, there's a pothole at these GPS coordinates. I mean, that's that's something as a human you can't do. You can't <clears throat> shout at the car in front of you, be like, hey, what's the road condition up ahead? You can't do that. And that's immediately a massive benefit to a self-driving car as opposed to a human driving a car. So, yeah, that's... 5G, <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> okay. You've mentioned a couple of things, LiDAR, radar technology, but what is the the overall principle, I guess, or the fundamentals of getting a car to drive itself? Yeah, so the fundamentals would suggest we'll go with the absolute basic of just getting a car to drive on its own. The whole 5G thing just adds to the safety of the car and its abilities. So just to get a car to drive on its own, you can break it down into two broad categories. When I say broad categories, I mean each system that I'm mentioning here is massive. Um, you've got a path planning system, and then you have a path following system. Your path planning, as a quick summary, is just the car working out where it needs to go. The path following system is ensuring the car stays on that path. To get to, so let's go a little bit further into path planning. This is based on my work. I didn't do the path planning. Um, I did the path following system more. Uh, so just from what I saw, the path planning is far more involved than path following. Trying to plan a path, this involves many smaller subsystems. So the main idea at the end of the day is you want to you pick a path that the vehicle can follow. 
when I say a vehicle can follow it, it needs to be a safe path, it mustn't drive into anything, it must obey speed limits, that kind of thing. All these things that go into choosing a path. I mean, it's something every driver does of a normal car. You plan your path. You look ahead a few meters or however far ahead you need to look. You look at the signs above you to determine which lane you need to be in on the highway so that you can get on the off-ramp. I mean, some people don't do that, but <laughs> it's a self-driving car. <laughs> That's what you've got to do. That's some of the things that you've got to do. Um, and that has to take many things into account. So speed limits, viable, uh, when I say viable lanes on the road, some, some lanes aren't viable. Like a shoulder lane is generally not a viable driving lane. Driving off the road is not viable. And this is just, it's sort of like a, a huge, I don't know, box of things that you've got to sift through to make sure that you've picked the best, the optimal path to take. Um, and to do that, you have a few technologies. So you've got LiDAR, which uh, LiDAR is the one that you use for objects that are further away from you. And I mean, if you just, if you just Google what a LiDAR system sees, it's incredible. Um, uh, then you've got a radar system for things that are closer to you. Just trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to remember which one was which. Oh, but LiDAR and radar. You've got both those. You've got both those systems. Then you have a visual camera. Now that's used to identify objects in the road. So you can use it to identify other vehicles. I mean, a LiDAR and radar can tell you that there is an object ahead of you. It cannot tell you whether it is a brick or a rock. I mean, it just tells you that it cannot see beyond something in front of you. So therefore there's something there. Uh, the camera can identify what that object is. Um, and then based on all of this information, you sort of you know, pick a path. I mean, it's a lot more involved than that, but that's a very, and a very simple breakdown, I guess. Is it simple? Was that simple? Yeah, so I think just in summary, as you say, you just sort of have to be able to, one, know where you're going and what the rules are really about that, obviously in terms of lines and speed limits and you know if it's possible to actually turn off here or not. And then after you have the rules basically keeping you in check, you need to be able to say, oh, can I identify everything that I'm seeing? And then I would guess the other part is also to be said, based off what I, based off what I'm seeing, I need to make a decision. Yeah, and that's that's the path planning system. So I mean, you could have, as a normal driver, you if you want to get somewhere, you've got hundreds of options of what you can do, and that involves the speed you can travel at, the routes you can take. But at the end of the day, if you've traveled the route hundreds of times, you're going to know which is the optimal route for you. And that's what a path planning system will do. It will be able to take into account everything around you, take into account where you want to go. Are there roadworks at the moment? Should I take a different route? And from all of that, it will choose an optimal path. Is that cool? So I'm guessing the nice part about it, so there's a part where there's an element of machine learning, as you say, because it's taken this path before, so it sort of knows what to look out for. But if it's never taken a path before, I guess that's where the whole 5G, as well as talking to other cars, really helps to say, well, let me go find out who else has driven this other path that I'm about to take, and what can I learn from it, and share that information on my processing system that I have in front of me. 
Correct. That's for optimal path planning, you will need more than just what a car itself can see. And this is where the whole 5G thing comes into it. Um, but ideally, I mentioned before, you would like a car, let's say it's got no connection to the internet. All it's got is the system or the systems on itself. And using those systems, it's able to get you from point A to point B. Um, just using the cameras, using the LiDAR radar, identifying objects around it. Um, and yeah, that's so yeah, that would be the path planning section. You've then got path following. And this again, this is also full of smaller systems, but it's not, I don't, I don't think it's as complex or as involved as path planning because you've now got the path. All you need to do is keep the car on the path. The path planning system would have taken care of what speed you need to be at, at what areas, when you need to stop, uh, the, the coordinates you need to be at, whereas the path following system just follows all those numbers, just sticks to the path that was given to it. And the main system of that is just steering the wheels to keep the car on the path. And you'd be surprised for people who've done control system theory how effective something as simple as a proportional controller is. I mean, the work I did was just, uh, we used a proportional controller that changed the proportional value basically at the end of the day. Just, if you've done control, this will make sense. If it doesn't, I, don't, I can't really make it simpler, um, but it just sort of changed the, the proportional value as you drove. And I mean, that's changing one value. So a little bit more involved in terms of how you get that value, but the level of accuracy you can get with something as simple as a proportional controller is astounding. It's <laughs> something so simple, it's been around for so long and it can keep a car like almost exactly on path with very little trouble. Um, and to do that, there's a couple of things you need. And the most important one is accurate location tra uh, location tracking. Without that, well, I don't think you're going to have a self-driving car. <laughs> <laughs> as long as the car can know where it is and where it's supposed to be to within a relatively high level of accuracy, you'll be fine using a simple proportional controller. But I think this, the simplified version of that is, as you say, the location sort of tells you, well, at the spot, I should be either moving at this um, speed or at this, I'll say, distance, or let's say from the left or the right. And basically, I'll send out some sort of signal to check that. And based off what I receive, I need to adjust at the end of the day. Yeah. So you do need that location, I guess, to really give you the first estimate of where you should be. And then afterwards, really adjusting. So I think that's the summary of control systems for the principle. Yeah. That's it. Reducing the error to zero. That's and then however you do that is your choice. But it's not a very complex system needed to keep a car on the correct path. Okay, that's actually quite cool. Um, but is this now something that's purely theoretical, or um, you know, have you obviously seen demos of this, and have you ever actually been in a self-driving car yourself? Uh, just from my experience with the work I did, most of it was theoretical, uh, ran simulations, that kind of thing. We did have a section where we actually implemented this practically. Um, and then 
I can't say I've been in a self-driving car because when you say self-driving, the car does everything. So it plans the path and then it follows the path. All I did was follow a path that we had determined pre uh, just before getting into the car. So I haven't been in a self-driving car, but I have been in a car that steers itself to stay on a path. Because <laughs> um, Imola's question as well was to say, what's the experience of being inside one compared to a normal car? <laughs> so, I mean, I can, I can theorize what it's like. People are falling asleep in their cars. So something for a lot of people, I think. Um, I'm not a, definitely not an expert. I, this is just an opinion on this is, when you're in a car as a driver, you have control of what's going on. You, you have a certain level of control of what's going to happen to you when you're in the car. As soon as it's a self-driving car, you relinquish that control. Not that it's a bad thing, but it's something you'd have to get used to. If you've been driving for 40 years where you have complete control of the car, now all of a sudden you're sitting in a vehicle that's driving itself, I would imagine that's quite an uncomfortable feeling just watching the steering wheel go on its own, the car deciding its own following distance and all of that. I personally think for the first couple of times that would be uneasy. Just like when you're in an airplane and it takes a dip, you can't do anything about it. <laughs> it doesn't matter how safe you are, there's nothing you can do, so you panic. Um, and I'd imagine that's sort of what it's like the first couple of times. But if people are now falling asleep in their cars, you get used to it. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, eventually it will become more normal and it will eventually become the norm, I guess, when everything's set into place. Yeah, definitely. I definitely think that would happen if it's allowed to continue the way that it's going. <laughs> um, but as you mentioned, there are obviously a few challenges that we need to overcome, I'd say, in Africa to get this to become sort of something that we see within our time or for it to become something that materializes. Um, I think you mentioned, obviously, the basic things like just having markings on the road. And um, as you said, I think you don't need 5G, obviously, but it does make things a lot safer, a lot smarter. So with that now, you doing your master's, obviously, in this topic, is there really room for you to pursue this as a career within Africa? Or would you need to venture outside of Africa? So... Pursuing it as a career, if I want to work in a factory that's for in a building that is dedicated to self-driving cars, as far as I'm aware, I can't do that in I can't do that in Africa. We I am not aware of an African brand of car. I don't know. Are you? <laughs> so I mean if I want to work at Tesla, I can't do that in Africa. VW, who else is there? I think Mercedes is doing it as well. Audi, they're all doing it. Um, and none of them are in Africa. So pursuing a career where I want to actually be involved with the teams face-to-face -face kind of a thing I can't do in Africa but at the end of the day you can work on anything from anywhere in the world and just send it off as an email that's that's the advantage of the internet I guess mm. so if I really really wanted to I could apply for a job and say look I can't maybe I can't be there maybe I can't come across I mean, with the whole pandemic around the world, you can't really travel anywhere. So I think you could pursue a career, but I think it's, personally, I don't think it's worthwhile. If you're going to stay, if you're stuck in South, South Africa, maybe find another job. 
<laughs> you can't leave. I don't unless you're going to start the company yourself. Mm. Don't I don't really think it's something you should pursue in the country. <clears throat> I mean, <laughs> from from what I've seen, places are trying to get buses to be self-driving. Imagine trying to tell the taxi industry that the drivers no longer have jobs. I mean, you you can't even propose that idea to the government. It's just a waste of time. Um, <laughs> they won't they won't let you bring something like that in. I mean, they can't even get a bus system to work with drivers because the taxi industry won't let them. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I'll summarize that. I think if you're willing. If you're willing to, you could pursue a career, but you're not pursuing it for an African company. You're pursuing it for an international company. You just happen to be working in Africa. Yeah. So I think the limitation actually around not just, I guess, self-driving cars or just using AI to sort of start automating a lot of jobs is that that's the biggest issue in Africa is that you can't take away a job from someone else. You almost have to sort of start as you say your own company that says well i'm not hiring people anyway i'm getting bots to do it they i'm not taking anyone's job away i'm just not giving it to other people and rather using robots to do it and that's probably the only way you i guess you wouldn't meet some sort of resistance here even then i still think you would meet a resistance because i doubt i mean i'm not involved in it but i doubt that the government would give you tenders for something like that um so it's not so much a technological barrier, I guess. It's a political barrier. It's not that you can't do it in Africa. It's that the politics of Africa do not allow you to do it. That's just, I mean, I'm not a politician. I just, that's just what it seems like. I can't see any other reason we don't have this technology uh, booming in a, on a continent this big. I mean, Oh. It's almost the same thing as solar. Like, you know, I think people, just the demand, I guess, the lack of the government giving us the opportunity or giving us actually electricity has driven people towards solar. But before that, I don't think that even the conversation was, you know, ready to be put on the table to say, well, let's rather get solar and shut down power plants. No, no that, that's exactly it. It's the same thing that it happens in almost every aspect of life here. You just... The government doesn't seem to want you. I don't. I don't know what it is. I don't know. Like they don't want you to move forward. The rest of the world is moving to solar. We are still trying to fight with coal power stations using suboptimal coal because we sell our coal to other countries. I mean, if that's the mindset you're dealing with, self-driving cars are never going to work here. Like not because they can't, but because no one will let them. I think it is it is really a challenge and as as well as well. That's why I was really asking to say, well, I think you answered it to say that if you you wouldn't actually pursue it, I guess, within Africa itself. Um, but is there maybe um with the stuff that you have learned, obviously, as you said, a lot of it relying on control systems. I'm guessing you could apply it somewhere else um and solve other sort of problems that we do have in Africa, maybe provide value with that if you can't leave to work on this as your passion. Which I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying people should, you know, if this is their passion, that they should stop it because, like, yeah, they can't do it in Africa, so they might as well go find something else. So if it's really a passion, really to work on self-driving cars, and definitely, you know, 
move towards a climate or a country which is going to say, okay, fine, let me, it'll let you follow your passion. But I do feel like if this is your passion within Africa, you won't see it within any reasonable amount of time. And you sort of have to be forced to go far from home to actually let that materialize. No, that's, that's exactly it. Um, I mean, I suppose you're working with control systems, self-driving cars, you could think, I mean, <laughs> this sounds like a, like a brilliant idea to me anyway. You could go to the farmers and say, cool, we'll make your tractors self-driving so they can plow the field on their own. Are you allowed to do that here? How many jobs will be lost because of that? And it's not just that the jobs are lost, it's that the jobs are lost and these people who lose their jobs have got no other option. It's not like, cool, the government's going to help you. They're not going to help you. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's just, you've lost your job and now you have no income. You've got no support from the government. You are in an absolutely terrible position all because someone wanted to bring in a self-driving tractor. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think the only industry you can sort of push forward here is mining. But even then, if you bring something in that replaces the miners, all the miners lose their jobs. That's a bit of a mess. And and it's not so much of an issue if there were other jobs that they could take. But at, yeah. at, at this moment in time, you bring something to replace them to say, well, at least you're safer now. But then they sort of say, well, yeah, but now I'm out of a job. Yeah, and that's it. They're out of a job. <clears throat> like you said, they've got nowhere else to go. Well, they've got nothing else to go to. Um, and it's, it is, that just seems to be the case in most of Africa, and I can't speak for all of Africa, and I don't know all of Africa, but that's definitely the case in South Africa. Now, I think one of the the issues that you mentioned very earlier now is trying to get, I guess, your vehicle itself to do the processing of the information, right, without sending it off somewhere sort of as a database sending and then sort of obviously getting some sort of um, um, signal with um, some JSON object or of some information basically to say, okay, yeah, I can send it because there's obviously one issues in sometimes communicating and sending information stuff out. And if you're driving really fast, you can't wait for that. You can't afford that lag, I guess, um, for you to get that signal. Um, so what yeah. are the what other challenges really are there? And I'm guessing this is now a global thing, isn't it? Um, how they are of, processing how they process yeah. how cars process the information or the ideas behind it. So, from a path following perspective, because I did this work, keeping a car on a path requires very, very little processing power. I mean, we controlled the whole car. Well, what I did is I controlled the whole car using a Raspberry Pi and using one core of a Raspberry Pi. I mean, it's like 1.2 gigahertz processor and it's not optimized. It's just, I just used Raspberry Pi and I controlled it absolutely no problem at all um, it wasn't the most advanced control system but i don't think you need to control the car and keep it on its path i don't think you need too much processing power but from a path planning perspective i don't know uh, i don't know what i don't know what people are using at the moment um, i would imagine you need more processing power than keeping the car on the path just for object identification, you're dealing with images which are a lot bigger than uh, numbers like the speed of a car. So I'd imagine it's more, but I don't think it's, it's, it's an excessive number. I mean, 
if I remember correctly, I think the, the chip on the Tesla is a 2.2 gigahertz processor. That's obviously it's been uh, optimized for the job that it's doing. So it's not, you can't compare it to a 2.2 gigahertz process on your computer, which is just designed to run anything. Um, but I mean, that's, that's not a lot of, that's not a massive amount of computing power. So I don't, I don't think it's, again, I don't think that's a limiting factor. It's not something that should stop self-driving cars from being all over the world because 2.2 gigahertz is not at the, it's not the peak of what we can do. If 2.2 is what I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> I think as you mentioned now with the path planning and path following, I'm guessing there's a lot of learning that the system will have to do sort of um, your machine learning. Um, now, does that mean that because my car will be driven on South African roads, I'm teaching it sort of what to do. I am sort of making it or giving it some sort of bias towards certain paths and routes and certain conditions that I cannot obviously move my car. Let's say I get one in Africa and I want to move to Australia. Um, is it something just as simple as changing a software or? Yeah, so that'll depend on the kind of system that you're using. I, I'm not too sure what they actually use, but I can sort of guess between two that you've either got a system that doesn't learn once, so once someone's bought the car, uh, it doesn't learn the patterns of drivers around it, which is something that people do. You learn on South African roads, how people drive, um, when to move out of the way, kind of a thing. People don't use indicators, so you've just got to be prepared for them to just shoot right across in front of you. <laughs> if your self-driving car is learning that kind of behavior, then when you get to a new country or a new set of roads where people drive differently, it'll have to relearn. I don't think it will be a case of you have to wipe the memory and has to start from beginning, from the beginning, but you probably have to mark off, cool, I've moved to new roads, just sort of reset a few things. We're driving on different roads now, people will drive differently. So relearn the behaviors of how people are going to drive around me. That's if your car learns people's behaviors or driving behaviors around you. Most things, if it doesn't do that, it just follows the rules of the road, the speed limits. Um, condition of the road, when to stop, when to start. A red light at a robot means stop. That's generally the same around the world. So it's not really something you have to relearn. But if you swap the side of the road, you then just got to go into your software and change the side that everything's on. Um, I don't know what's involved in that. So I don't know how much, how difficult that would be. But it's not, I don't think it's a case of completely relearning. It's not like you need a completely different system between the two. It's just a few tweaks to parameters within the system. And that should allow you to move from different cities, I guess, or different countries. But now, so you obviously mentioned a couple of things which I guess are holding the continent, or let's say for us, obviously, we can speak of South Africa, that's holding South Africa back from getting this. Um, type of advancement in technology and I guess keeping up with the rest of the world. So with that though, do you have maybe any, some sort of suggestions in which, you know, Africa or South Africa can take to sort of accelerate bringing this type of stuff to South Africa so we don't lose people like you or, you know, people can actually pursue their passions and dreams if they really feel like, you know what, this is something that they really want to do. So, 
If I had to ask you what South Africa is known for, like, as an international, in the international community, what is South Africa known for? What do we give to the world? <laughs> I don't know if it's a trick question because if you said if you, you you got me when you said what do we give to the world because when you said what are we known for I was going to say corruption. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm that's what I'm leading to. We but we what we're known for is we give the world gold. We like <laughs> we dig some holes and we give some minerals to the world that we then buy back for more than more than what we spent digging them out. Um, and that's it. That's in terms of a <laughs> in terms of trying to keep people here for self-driving cars. When your country's known for digging holes and corruption, what <laughs> it's you've got to have an entire change, like an entire shift of what the country's known for. And for, so, from personal, just that's just from personal experience. I don't want to be in a country where I know, well, where I don't know if I'm going to have power when I come home. To charge an electric vehicle, you need power. To charge an electric vehicle, you could use solar panels, but we don't have that system in place because we're too busy trying to build Madupi power station or whatever it was. I don't know, it's taken like 13 years or something. That's ridiculous. If you want to keep people in your country who have skills or who want to push the technological world forward, you can't have a system like that. That's completely like, I don't know what's the word. Um, it's not conducive to that kind of environment that I want to be in. I mean, this is far beyond what I studied. This is now just what I, how I feel about the country. But to keep people like me here, you have to have a complete change. And when I say that, you can't have a corrupt government like we have where they're stealing money left, right, and center. You need a constant power supply and not just, oh, a coal power supply. You've got to move forward. You can't just be kicking out uh, greenhouse gases and be like, cool, that's fine. We'll stick with that forever because we want to, I don't know. I don't know what their reason is for not using solar, not using wind, not using all the other options that we have. But that's the mindset that South Africa, or not South Africans, but the South African government seems to have. It's just stick with the old things for some reason. I don't know what it is. But that's pushing people who are qualified away. <laughs> uh, most of the people I know who are qualified and who would be more than willing to make a difference in a country like this are leaving because you can't make a difference. Saying, oh, stay so you can fix the problems. You cannot fix the problems if the people at the top will not let you. So that's something that has to change. And I mean, good luck with that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. It's just. So we need a whole cultural, I guess, mindset, which needs to be a big project, one that takes a few, I won't say decades, yeah, probably decades, one to continue and I guess be resilient because you know that there are going to be a lot of forces which will fight that as well. Mm, that's, and that's it. It's not a quick fix. It's not something like, cool, tomorrow someone's going to stand up in parliament and be like, all our problems are solved. We're going to start doing things this way. That's not how it works. And if, you, if you're willing to ride that out, then cool. Um, I don't know many people who are. Yeah. I think that covers everything, <laughs> Rory. Thanks so much. <laughs>
Or it's a bit morbid at the end there, but. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think it's just something that we, it's a space for people to really discuss exactly what's going on in the world. I think not to say that youngsters as youngsters, we know exactly what to do, but I just don't feel like we, we have the opportunity either to want to get our voice heard or discuss these things amongst ourselves, amongst friends, amongst um, people which have the same background or education as you. You know, I think it's something that we're all struggling with, we're all fighting, we're all seeing and noticing, but it's not something that is communicated often. So that's that's actually, of the people I know who have left, no one, and including myself, no one has wanted to leave the country. You don't want to leave the place where you grew up, where all your family is, where your friends are. It's not like, cool, I mean... I'm, I'm not like, I just want to leave the country to leave the country. If things were working properly here, I'd stay. If I saw that I had an opportunity here, I would stay. But that's not what I see. That's not what all the people I know saw. It was, why stay here? For what? I'm just going to waste my life here. I mean, <laughs> not because... Not because they can't, not that, yeah, not because they're incapable of doing something to help, but because they can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.